welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. So in case you don't know, I'm Mark Ritter. Shame on you, first of all, for not knowing me. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. Thank you all so much for coming today, despite not having Pastor Joe here. A few weeks back, he had asked me to speak on the last Sunday in June, and as you might notice, it is not the last Sunday in June, so the message that I prepared today might not necessarily fall in line with the holiday that we celebrate today, which is Father's Day. And this reminds me of the very first Mother's Day that Joe had preached at our church. If you recall, he had talked about God the Father and told a wonderful story about fathers and promised that on Father's Day, he would talk about mothers, and he did do it. So I am just hearkening back to what Joe did when he first came, and honestly, we can just give him the blame. So for a lot of things, my being here being one of them. But with today being Father's Day, we do recognize that it's a day to honor and celebrate the men in our lives. And I imagine that very few of you actually know the beginnings or the history of why we even celebrate Father's Day. Um, If you do know why it's been celebrated as a holiday, just act surprised when I tell you. So many groups had been pushing for Father's Day to be celebrated all the way back to like post-Civil War America, but it wasn't until 1972 that Father's Day even became recognized as a national holiday. And the fact of the matter is that Father's Day was first conceived as a response to, get this, Mother's Day. So that had been celebrated since 1914. And even though it took 58 years to achieve equal holiday recognition, as with all things, behind many men, there are always strong women pioneering the way. And so as a fitting tribute to Father's Day, I want to tell you the story of several trailblazing women who pioneered in the fields of aviation and aeronautics to become highly distinguished venerable role models for countless people that came after them. And they too fought for equal recognition, maybe not a date on the calendar, but for a place on the moon. So today I'm gonna tell you the story of the Mercury 13. And while you have likely never heard of these women, or if you know them, it might just be a passing knowledge, a piece of trivia, I want you to think about today as you hear their story in the context of the time and place that they occupied in history and in society so that maybe you can find a newfound respect for them as role models in your own life, women to imitate, they are anything but trivial. So today's scripture comes from Ephesians. And as we look at the story of the Mercury 13, I'd like to do so in the context of this letter that Paul had written. So when we look at the letter, we'll consider what is being asked of the reader. Overall, you'll see that there is one major theme, and that is our obedience to Christ and his example of love in our relationships with our fellow human beings. So this is Ephesians 1 and 2, 15 through 21. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. 
So be careful to live your life wisely, not foolishly. Take advantage of every opportunity because these are evil times. Because of this, don't be ignorant, but understand the Lord's will. Don't get drunk on wine, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So keep this scripture in the four of your minds as I tell you the story of the Mercury 13. In particular, I want you to think about the ideas that Paul has presented here with maintaining obedience to Christ's example of love to each other, taking advantage of every opportunity to be filled with the Spirit and understand the Lord's will, so to be fulfilled in life, find joy in being of service to others. So, our story this morning goes back to one of the most exciting and scary times in recent history, the space race. So, in the 1950s, the United States and the SSR, USSR began announcing each other's intentions to launch artificial satellites into orbit and go to space. And pressure had begun building between these two nations that didn't just want to prove their own superior spaceflight capability, but also prove their own ideologies that were competing against each other. The very identities of these nations, we had the United States presenting capitalism and the USSR presenting communism. The competition gained intense attention when the USSR achieved the very first successful satellite launch of the Sputnik rocket, on October 4th, 1957. And so as the spacecraft was orbiting Earth, countless people would tune into the radio signals that beep, beep, beeped all the way around countless days, 22 days straight until the batteries ran out. The fact that the Soviets were the first to successfully launch an object into orbit sent fear into many Americans who tried to prove themselves. The Americans, you might not know this, the Americans' response to the Soviet satellite was not as uh, successful, maybe, as they had planned. They had thought about this leading up to it. They had put together a lot of research, and they were ready to launch a spacecraft into orbit. It's just that the USSR had surprised them and beat them to the punch. So they scrambled maybe didn't check as much as they should have on the things that they needed to do to send something into space, as you do. And their project Vanguard, which was the first satellite they wanted to send into orbit, resulted in a catastrophic failure. Just blowing up on the launch pad became a big joke to the international community. In fact, it was renamed from the Vanguard to the Stay Putnik. So we had the Sputnik and the State Sputnik. No, it wasn't really called that. But the Soviets definitely enjoyed this. They were getting early gains in the space race. They had several satellites that they had reached into orbit. It's not to say that the Americans didn't quickly follow suit, because we obviously did. You might have heard. But um, the, the Americans did not stay down for long. And by this time in the story, the United States 
had developed NASA had appropriated enormous sums of money towards manpower and space research, scientific growth, and they had made the goal being Project Mercury. They wanted this to be what would be our, our big jewel in the crown of American space travel. So nobody had ever, spent any, had ever sent anyone to space before this time. Nobody knew what the human body could endure. Nobody knew what would be required, and it was anyone's guess. So the USSR and USA both had begun sending mammals into space. We had dogs and apes. You might have seen pictures of them on stamps in the past. But they wanted to assess what would happen to a body this far away from Earth. So they took their best guess, and they selected the best possible candidates to go into space with the help of a man called Dr. William Randolph Lovelass II. With a name like that, he was destined for greatness, I'm sure. But he developed physical, mental, and medical testing for the eventual astronauts. And so after spending a lot of time deciding what kind of rigors he would need to put the trainees through, he began testing many of the male astronauts. After he had done this, he became curious about how women would fare in space. He wanted to put them through the same circumstances. He knew that generally they required less oxygen and energy, were more compact, didn't weigh as much, and wanted to see if physically their endurance would be uh, a match. So he had um, already done a lot of the testing for the Mercury program, was interested in the women, so with all of the money that he had, he went ahead and funded a program of his own to begin testing women. This was outside of the scope of what NASA had hired him to do. So if you're a doctor and you're doing research, you're not an aviator, you're not an astronaut, you would reach out to some high-profile people that might know a little bit about it. So at the time, one of the highest-profile aviation masters was a woman named Jerry Cobb. So this lady had gained her private pilot's license at 17, a commercial pilot's license at 18, and by 21, her resume included dropping off and delivering military fighter jets and bombers to foreign air forces worldwide. So he reached out to her and had, him, had her help him um, develop an invitation for some women that were like-minded, um, maybe had equal experiences in the past to come up and take these physical endurance tests that the male astronaut trainees had taken. So as I had said, he was very successful in life. Dr. Lovelace had money and funds to go ahead and sustain this program, and it's a good thing because it was outside of the scope of what he had done at NASA. And if in the early days this had gotten out into the public and had the secret been reached to NASA, we would not have gotten any of the conclusions and findings that he had had. He would have been forced to shut it down early and lose what otherwise would have been incredibly helpful science in aerospace medicine. So he developed three phases of testing to assess these women. As, secret, as secretive candidate selections went on, Lovelace and Jerry Cobb recruited another 19 women to join the original 25 that they had tested. They eventually became financed by uh, another famous person. There was an aviator, aviatrix? There was a woman aviator by the name of Jackie Cochran, uh, who you might know of. She was uh, a cosmetics company founder. She had broken many barriers 
in her aviation career, including the sound barrier in 1953. She was the first woman to do that. So her husband, being a billionaire and having plenty of funds, decided that he enjoyed this project that they were doing, wanted his wife to become a participant, so he also helped finance, and now they had unlimited money to go towards this research endeavor. So Jackie and the countless others um, went through and, and did all of the rigors of these testing, which I will tell you about, it's incredible. But um, unfortunately, Jackie was one of the oldest participants, and as such, she had some abnormalities with her heart that kept her from being qualified for uh, the program. So she was disqualified, as were many others. All that were left, and this was in 1960, by the end of the first phase of testing, were an elite 13 women. These 13 had literally passed the exact same phase one physical examination that the male astronaut trainees had done. So Jerry Cobb had called this group of women, not the Mercury 13 at this time, but the first lady astronaut trainees, the FLATs or the FLATs. Um, these women had gone through excruciating physical tests. And unlike the men who had done these astronaut trainings as a group, the women did them individually or sometimes in pairs. A much more challenging experience because it's much more rigorous not to be able to lean on other people and see that we can get through this together. Instead, they had to do this all alone. I'll tell you, some of the things that they had to do seem barbaric or even silly now. But hindsight's 2020. We didn't know what it would take to go to space. So in the early days of testing, they didn't know about the conditions that would be encountered in space. So they exposed the women to a lot of x-rays. They figured that in addition to general physical examinations, they probably should stick very long rubber tubes down their throat into their stomach to test the acids. The doctors would shock their forearms to test their reflexes because a reflex hammer wasn't enough, apparently. And they were pushed to exhaustion while they were weighed down riding recumbent stationary bicycles in order to just test their limits. One of the strangest tests by far was injecting ice water into their inner ear to induce severe vertigo just so they could time how long it took for them to recover. Fascinatingly, the women who tested in these phases were all happy to do so. They looked back on their time fondly and said, maybe it wasn't the most pleasant experience, but I'm glad that I did it. It just shows how much of a feat it was for them. So a few of these women went on to the second phase of testing at Dr. Lovelace's clinic. Jerry Cobb, another woman named Wally Funk, and a third named Rio, um, all traveled to a place called Oklahoma City, you might have heard of it, to be submerged in isolation tanks. This is now a popular fad to get into a tank, uh, float in salt water, and just close out the world. But for these women, it was a different experience. It wasn't just a 30-minute, hour-long test to see how much they enjoyed being quiet and peaceful. Instead, they were asked to stay as long as humanly possible. The temperature of the water, the humidity of the air, made it so that it was the same as their body temperature. They described being inside of the tank that was pitch black and silent as almost feeling like they couldn't feel themselves. Well, I just knocked off that. The women would say that they'd smack their face to feel and couldn't tell where their hands were. They lost the sense of smell. 
They lost the sense of touch they obviously could not see. And later we learned that most humans can stay in the, the tank for about two or three hours before they begin to experience hallucinations and start crawling out of their skin. Wally Funk had later recalled that she indeed splashed her face, felt nothing, splashed her body, felt nothing, and instead started to imagine maybe this is what space feels like. And so for several hours, she closed her eyes and imagined that she was floating amongst the stars and actually had one of the longest times in the tank. The male uh, subjects, again, couldn't stand more than two or three hours. One of the women, Jerry Cobb, who had started this uh, program with Dr. Loveless, recounted her experience as being quite pleasant. She said after the rush of her daily life, running all of the things that she did, flying all of the jets that she did, as well as the discomfort of being injected with all kinds of ice water in your ear and other tests, that she found it quite peaceful to float in the dark. It was serene, and she indeed held the record for the longest time in the tank at over nine and a half hours. Jerry went on to complete the third phase of testing in the program. So this involved using military equipment, centrifuges, uh, jet aircraft, and pushed their human bodies to the limits. And in fact, Jerry had ranked in the top 2% of all astronaut candidates, both men and women. So at this time, there were several other female lady astronaut trainees that were getting ready to test in the third phase as well. And while they were planning, um, it was decided that they would reach out to Pensacola, Florida, use the Navy equipment there, and, uh, and do the, the rest of the testing. So while they were planning for this third and final phase, a few days before the women were to report to Pensacola, Florida, they received telegrams that abruptly canceled their trip. Without NASA officially requesting these tests, the United States Navy would not allow the use of their facilities. So Dr. Loveless pointed out to NASA that women's bodies generally were more compact, they weighed less, they require less oxygen, energy, less food and water, less space in general, all things that you need to bring less of into space, and that his research had shown that these women were physically capable of meeting and oftentimes exceeding the male subjects that he had also studied. Nevertheless, he was met with opposition, and they reminded him that they never asked for the study, they never wanted it, they never condoned it. They'll happily take his research, but they didn't want him to use the military equipment. So by this time, the Soviets had already stunned the world when they had sent the very first human being into space. Yuri Gagarin, on April 12th, 1961, was the first human to fly. And shortly after, a month or so, Alan Shepard flew into space, suborbital flight. He was the second man, the first American to go into space. Shortly thereafter, the first American to orbit the Earth was John Glenn. And within a year, the American focus became clear. President John F. Kennedy rather famously said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon this decade and do other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And once this became the goal, Everything NASA did was streamlined toward that mission of putting a man on the moon. Anything that deviated from the lunar focus was scrapped. 
So all of the work these women had done, all of the research Dr. Lovelace had done in a privately, studied, uh, privately funded study that did not cost the taxpayers a single cent was outside of the bounds of NASA, and it was finished. NASA and the United States did not see a need to study women in space. They did not see a need to explore the possibility of sending women into space because early on it was decided that to be qualified for an astronaut, there was one simple criterion that women could not meet. An astronaut applicant must be a military test pilot. Frustratingly for these women, it was not until 1974 that women were even allowed to become test pilots in the United States. So they never would have been allowed on a space mission under these rules. They had been cheated out of their final phase of testing, and they were upset. So, like anyone with this unique skill set, unparalleled qualifications, a national stage to air your grievances, she did what anyone would do. Jerry Cobb got one of the other Mercury 13, an incredible woman by the name of Janie Hart, who I'll tell you about. And they testified before the United States House of Representatives Committee hearing on gender discrimination. So, at this time, NASA testifies that, well, these women don't meet the selection criteria. And under the selection criteria, women cannot qualify as astronauts. And our space hero, first American to orbit the Earth, John Glenn, further stated, rather frustratingly, that, quote, the fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order, end quote. So nothing changed as a result of the hearings, just made them more upset. But it did keep the fire burning in their hearts, and it allowed countless other women and men to hear the stories of this fascinating group. I was going to tell you a little bit more about this woman, Janie Hart. So in a period of one decade, she had eight children. She raised them. She piloted her husband to campaign stops for him to win a seat in the Senate. She served as the vice chairperson of the Oakland County, Michigan Democratic Committee. She was a founding member of the National Organization for Women, and she was the first female uh, licensed helicopter pilot, as well as an accomplished aviator and avid sailor. All in a very short period of time, she kept herself busy. So, after the hearing, a newsman asked Janie Hart about why, as a mother, why, as a wife, would you want to leave all of that to go to the moon? And being the deferential, perhaps graceful answer person that she was, she took this misogynistic question and answered it beautifully. She said, if you had eight kids, you'd want to go to the moon too. <laughs> I love that. I wish I could tell you at the end of this story that the women were vindicated and accepted into the Apollo pro program and that we had one small step for a woman, a giant leap for humankind, but it's not how it ended. So, as I said, many people got to hear these stories as a result of the hearings. And many women, young and old, looked up to the Mercury 13. And Although many of these women have passed, a lot of their legacy still remains. One of the most fascinating things I found was the very first women, woman into space was Valentina Tereshkova. 
and the USSR sent her into space. And afterwards, she got to meet Jerry Cobb. And when they ran into each other, Tereshkova said that, uh, that, that Jerry was her hero, that she had looked up to her. She, uh, Tereshkova had no pilot training, had no experience in space. The only reason the USSR, well, not the only reason, one of the main reasons the USSR had sent her into space was because they had bad information about the Mercury 13. They had heard about the program that Dr. Loveless had funded. They thought it was NASA seriously considering sending women to space, and they didn't want to be embarrassed or outshined. So that's why Valentina Tereshkova had gone to space. But as she came back and met Jerry Cobb, she said that this was her role model and that she had looked up to her. So much later from this story, in 1995, Eileen Collins became the very first woman to pilot the United States Space Shuttle. And she recognized the importance of these women on her career and her aspirations since an early age. Before the launch of the space shuttle, excuse me, before the launch of the space shuttle, she actually recognized three of the women, Wally Funk, Jerry Cobb, and Rhea Hurley. I'll tell you, it's interesting because finally, last year, only one of the women from the original Mercury 13 got to go into space. At the age of 82, Wally Funk became the oldest person to fly in space when she rode on the Blue Origin New Shepard spacecraft with uh, Jeff Bezos. And so this brings me back to the scripture that we had discussed at the beginning of the story. So can you see how Paul's call to follow Christ's example of love can play out? Can you imagine if these women had been treated with respect and if the prevailing actors of the time had submitted to their superior skills? Can you see how, despite facing countless challenges, the people of this story took advantage of every opportunity? The lessons learned throughout this story are plentiful. And as we go from this place later, let us consider how we can treat others. May we allow ourselves to be submitted to others to seek out how we can be of service to those around us. We may never be the next Dr. Loveless. We probably won't fund scientific research that will shape a generation of aerospace medicine, but we can be fulfilled when we follow this calling to live wisely and to be filled with the Spirit. We thank you for joining us today. And it is our hope that you have experienced the blessing of God through our time together. If you'd like to know more about our church community and its ministries, visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.